This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bowman. This is episode 236 of the podcast, and I am sitting in a very small brew house at the back of the Forager Brew Pub with Austin Jevney. Welcome to the podcast, Austin. Hey, man. Thanks a lot for having me here. Super pumped. It's, uh, you know, I think we started talking about this in two years ago, uh, right as I was planning on coming up to our Minnesota Craft Beer Festival in 2020, and I think I emailed you about that and... You know, we had kind of like, oh, yeah, maybe we can make this happen. And then, uh, you know, COVID happened. And then Beer Festival didn't happen. And then two years of life just kind of evaporated there. <laughs> yeah, I think we all felt that a little bit. Shockwave went far. <laughs> yes, yeah. But it's exciting to be back in Minnesota. We just, of course, finished up our Minnesota Craft Beer Festival. So I hopped in the car, drove down here to Rochester, Minnesota, and we were sitting in the back of the place where Forager got its start. And uh, Austin, you're the co-founder of Forager owner and recipe designer for Humble Forager Brewery. Exactly. It's kind of a mess to say, but, you know, there's a long story behind it. We will get to that long story. It's uh, it's interesting, and, uh, you know, there's certainly legalities involved in that that uh, you all have had to navigate. We'll talk about, about all of that, but first, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer, G&D Chillers new micro channel condensers. GD's micro channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions, use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks along with lower global warming potential. GD Chillers engineers are committed to green technology design while developing a more energy efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact GD Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by BSG, exclusive distributors of RAR Malting Company. Since 1847, RAR Malt has been a benchmark of quality and consistency for brewers from 19th century through today's craft beer pioneers. Whether you're creating classic lagers, resin-clouded hazies, or barrel-aged behemoths like they do here at Forager, inspired malts like RAR North Star Pills, Malted Oats, and more here to make your brewing dreams a reality. Get in touch today at go.bsgcraft.com slash contact dash us. And speaking of BSG, we are co-sponsoring the Minnesota Made Party at the legendary First Avenue on Wednesday, May 4th. That's next week if you are listening to this on the Friday when it is released. That party features Trampled by Turtles and a few other Minnesota acts. It's a private event, but... If you find me at CBC before the show, I'll have a few tickets for podcast listeners while they last. And quickly, if you're brewing and planning, visit breweryworkshop.com for more information about our upcoming brewery accelerator in Portland, Oregon this July. Okay, Austin, let's talk about Forager. Tell me the story. Forager basically was a small brew pub idea that I had for a while. Um, and then I finally met my partner in crime here, Annie Henderson, um, she was the go-getter that got it all done. Um, so she's really the person that made Forager happen. Uh, as far as the beer, that was uh, me, Paul Metz, um, come out, coming around with uh, recipes that we'd been making for a long time in our garage and our back porch. And then um, he worked professionally up at the Herkimer in the Twin Cities, um, RIP for that one. And I started working at Rush River Brewing Company in River Falls, Wisconsin. 
um, kind of doing QC and uh, packaging stuff. So Forger kind of came from that and we wanted to make a brew pub instead of a distribution brewery because it would be more of a like, community uh, focused place. Uh, we didn't want to just have it be for uh, beer geeks. We wanted it to be a gathering place for people all over uh, the south of Minnesota. And um, that's why we did like a wine, spirits, little coffee bar and full restaurant as well. It's fun. I popped in here last night for dinner and, uh, and I had a few beers and it's it's got like an eclectic almost not, not I wouldn't call it hipster but it's like the coolest hippest bohemian cracker barrel um you know that I've found like it you know just has there's that little shop there's a little to-go spot it just feels you know I mean it's obviously way more fun than cracker barrel is <laughs> um and you don't just do breakfast so <laughs> but it has that vibe you walk in you're like oh this feels really cool really fun but there's a thoughtful kind of uh, you know a put together piece to it, it feels like a, there's a nice creative energy that's great. Um, that's what we aimed for. Um, going with the name Forager wasn't only about foraging ingredients and things out in the wild, but it was also about picking these pieces that were historical relics from Rochester and previous restaurants and businesses that existed in town. So if you're here, uh, you can go around. We have little labels on all the different things that um, make up our restaurant and our space yeah. um, and the history of what they were and uh, what they represented in town before we were able to fortunately bring those pieces into our decor. You foraged the decor. You from- foraged the decor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. And so now you also have Humble Forager. And uh, obviously, because this is a brew pub, those things can't be connected. Um, and so uh, talk to me about, you know, the relationship of Forager, the brew pub and Humble Forager, the distribution brand. Absolutely. Um, I don't want to get into legal laws because everyone will fall asleep and not listen oh, to the rest sure, of the podcast. Sure. But Make it short and sweet. The archaic Minnesota beer laws don't allow brew pubs to distribute anywhere except offsite from our facility in 750 milliliter vessels and 64 ounce growlers. That's the only size we're allowed to sell. And unfortunately, therefore, we aren't allowed to make beer to sell to our friends. Um, there's been a bunch of people in Minnesota and around the Midwest that were requesting forager beer on draft and in liquor stores. Uh, we tried to change laws with the Brewers Guild here in town and um, just weren't able to do it. So we kind of pursued a different option and found that if we opened a sister company, Contract Brewery, we were able to do that. But we had to do it out of state uh, to start um, in Wisconsin. So then we were able to find an, a partner in uh, Minnesota as well. So we contract brew at Octopi in Wanakee, Wisconsin right. and Fair State Brewing Cooperative up in St. Paul. Uh, we make different beers at both locations. Um, but essentially, that was our, our way to get beers out to, um, you know, our friends and partners in the industry uh, who wanted to carry our beer. The reason we called it Humble Forager is honestly, we were just humbled by um, all the requests that we had gotten um, for this small little brew pub's beer. And we thought that was pretty cool. So we had to add another name onto it to create the sister company and do it distro that way. Um, so, yeah, there was a couple of years of navigating laws, finding different ways to do it. But um, we ended up being very happy with it. Although I did have to give up my shares of Forager to uh, to own it because they wouldn't allow me to do both. But, that, <laughs> but that's okay. You know, I still come by and say hi to everybody once in a while. But between the two brands, you were still a romantic power couple, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, connected, uh, you know, in those kinds of ways. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. so Annie is the uh, majority owner here at Forager yeah. and I'm the majority owner of Humble Forager. But, you know, we still um, go home and share a child Silas together. So <laughs> at the end of the day, we may talk sure. about our businesses sometimes over dinner, but yeah, yeah maybe yeah. not. <laughs> How, you know, as you, as you all are thinking about it, then, uh, you know, you've got a Humble Forager. 
as a brand has a you know product strategy that's maybe not exactly the same as Forge or the Brew Pub. Forge or the Brew Pub, you know, is uh, trying to make beers that fit all sorts of different drinkers. There, you know, you were making everything from Belgian beers. I've had I had some some lagers last night, a, a Doppelbach. Um, you know, of course, you make across both of the Humble Forager and Forager, make hazy IPAs, make other types of IPAs. There's, you know, fruited kettle sour beers, fruited hard seltzers, you know, too, across those. Um, you know, talk to me about how, you know, wh- you know, how you think about those things and what Humble Forager looks like then. You know, I assume that it's based on what the market wants from you versus what a drinker showing up here in the brew pub might want to drink. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, at Forager, we're really trying to make beer that's food focused. Um, we want people to come in, have a nice meal and be able to find something that's in a diverse flavor profile that fits our dishes seasonally. And in the Midwest, we have very defined four seasons. So we rotate through our beers um, pretty drastically throughout the season. Um, some of those kind of tail off into the next season and then we'll, you know, pull it aside if it's a beer that will age well and like bring it back and have those vintages uh, for later on. Um, but yeah, we're really making beer for food here at Forager, um, based on the fact that we can't distro. Um, that's kind of why we do our mixed firm and our barrel age program. Cause that's like our biggest opportunity to do off sale. Um, but with humble Forager, yeah, we're, we make hundred barrel batches of beer, um, <laughs> sure, which sure. is, which is a lot of beer to sell. Right, so, right. um, I think I would struggle to sell a hundred barrels of Belgian double, um, out in the wild because some of the best Belgian doubles in the world don't even sell out in the wild. So that's true. Um, right. we crush through that at Forager. People love our Belgian double. So it's a very, very different kind of like process that we're going for and why we design the recipes we do. Um, and yeah, Humble Forager was kind of built off the beers that we were able to sell offsite, like in our crowlers and growler program and what people were requesting. So right. Right. Um, our kettle sour line called Gummies Make Us Likeable was um, highly requested. So we developed a line called the Coastal Sunshine, Coastal Sunrise, Coastal Sunset series for Humble Forager. And it's based off a very similar recipe um, done in a very similar way as what we do down here at Forager, but just for a larger market. Um, We also did that kind of with our seltzer program, uh, took inspiration from that line, but basically put a cleaner seltzer base behind it rather than a kettle sour to give a gluten-free option out there for people. Um, And we're super focused on local ingredients here. So our Humble Bumble uh, seltzer for Humble Forager uh, uses honey that's uh, sourced from uh, apiary about an hour away from the Forager brew pub. And we buy a couple tons of honey from them every year, which is a really cool partnership that we're able to do um, for that. You make a seltzer base with honey? Uh, so the base isn't with honey, but we back sweeten it with honey. Oh, okay. So it's a okay. sugar brew um, brewed up to about 15%. And at Octopi, what's really, really cool about their facility um, if you don't know about them and you're interested in contract brewing, I'll absolutely pump them. They do a fantastic job of almost every style they brew there. And they've got tons of really, really great equipment that we could never afford or fit in our facility at sure, Forager. Sure. Um, one of those is a dealkalizer. Um, so if your brand is thinking about making a non-alcoholic product, you should reach out to Octopi because they have a, one of the nicest dealkalizers out there. And what it can do for our seltzer is we brew it to a really high ABV, then we run it through to strip off all those bad off flavors that we're getting from the high ABV sugar fermentation. Um, And we're left with a really, really clean seltzer base. And then we can back sweeten that with also leaves it with no yeast, so that when you absolutely you know, throw more sugar in there, you're not going to end up with exploding packages. Hundred um, percent, and that's like kind of the second piece of it. After we fruit it, 
Um, we let that run through a vacuum pasteurizer and that also cleans it up, make sure that we're good there. Yeah. And then after packaging, it gets the triple threat treatment and goes through a tunnel. So, um, <laughs> yeah, you know that your Cleaned product, up three uh, times. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. A super shelf stable. And, and that's something about humble forger, uh, working with octopi that's been great for us. It's also been difficult. Um, we've seen a ton of other breweries out there with exploding sour cans on the shelf and it's really. Um, kind of put a bad landscape out there for people who are doing different processes with their sours. Right. Um, a lot of people, I think, are assuming that um, fruited sours have a shelf life similar to hazy IPAs, and absolutely they do from certain breweries. But if you have a process that changes that, we have a shelf life of 18 months with flavor stability on our uh, fruited sours. And people look at our, our shelf life on the bottom of the cans and get a little worried sometimes. Um, but we've done multiple, multiple tests about the longevity of the, where that flavor is stable. And because of that process, um, our beers are great and they can sit in the back of your trunk on a hot Texas summer day <laughs> and they're not going to explode. Yeah, um, yeah. so we're really, really proud of like that process and how that works out there. And it's kind of, um, our job, I feel like to inform the world that, you know, not all fruited sours are made the same. Um, the process variables are what's very different about that. Um, and you know, it just allows us to to have a better product, I think, on the shelf. 100%. And I think, you know, we've talked about it on the podcast before, talked about it with uh, Levi Funk of uh, Untitled Art and uh, Funk Factory Guzzeria, who also does uh, brews at Octopi. Um, we've talked about uh, pasteurization with Doug Dozark of Cycle. You know, I mean, you hear the horror stories, but really, I mean, you know, everyone in this business should treat customers with respect and make sure that they have a product that, uh, um, well, I mean, the nice way to look at it is treat them with respect. The, uh, <laughs> the pragmatic way is, you know, don't make things that blow up on your customers because uh, your customers may not enjoy your brand quite as much after that experience. That's great that you can get 18 months out of it, though. That uh, is there. I mean, imagine there's something to that uh, heating process that kind of tempers, uh, you know, that fruit flavor in some sort of way. That's exactly it. It's kind of the the double dip of the vacuum pasteurizer on the front side and then the tunnel on the back side um, really helps stabilize that flavor. Um, the only thing that you'll notice is if you had a can that sits somewhere for, you know, six to 12 months, there's going to be a little bit of like a sediment in the bottom. That's just because we use all real fruit juices and purees mm -hmm. and everything. There's nothing artificial in those products. So that's going to settle out a little bit. Um, so you're going to just want to roll that can to kind of bring it back into solution. Um, but other than that, you know, that's really the only thing that we're seeing is um, your color at the top of the can might be a little bit different than the bottom of the can if it sits there for a while. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about how you use those ingredients. And we will, you know, eventually down the road also talk about barrel aging because that's something on the forager side that uh, Forger does a lot of and then he has a very hip reputation for. We will get to that. Don't you worry. Um, but before we talk about that, looking for innovation in your next beverage breakthrough, think outside the puree box and let your brand stand out with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends. Even smoothie seltzers can benefit from the extra boost of flavor and color. Old Orchard is based in the greater Grand Rapids, Michigan area, also known as Beer City USA, and supplies craft beverage categories ranging from beer, wine, and cider to seltzer, spirits, and kombucha. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, Arrived Mobile Point of Sale powers places with personality. Arrived is streamlining business operations for the makers of craft with an all-in-one solution that was built with love by hospitality professionals. No contracts and no monthly fees make Arrived a no-brainer for your craft business. Go to arrived.com forward slash CBD. 
that's CBB is in craft beer and brewing to set up a free customized demo that's arrived a R R Y V E D.com forward slash CBB. A different kind of P O S has arrived. So let's talk about building these flavorful fruity beers, Austin. Clearly it's something that you all have done well. And it's something that the market around the country now, because I think, you know, we we even get them from time to time out, out there in Colorado where I am. Um, you know, and of course you all have sent them to us. We've, I think we've reviewed some in the magazine in the past too. Big, beautiful, bold, but also kind of complex fruit mixtures. You all uh, you love to kind of flex on some of those fruit combinations. So talk to me about that creative process behind designing some of these fruity beers. Yeah, so kind of where a lot of our recipes are are designed is based off of experiences that I've had out in the world and things that I've tasted. And I feel like there's a lot of really good options for people to, you know, buy what's easy and source some from really great companies uh, that have a similar f- like fruit than each other. Um, but to reach out there and find unique fruits that are harder to source um, and then also understand their flavor profiles and what their impact's going to be on the final product is like a challenge for me that I take a lot of passion in. And I also really want to introduce people to these new fruits that exist around the world that they may have never heard of before. Um, one of them, for example, is the calamansi lime and it was um, something that Timmy up at Barrel Theory Brewing Company in the Twin Cities had introduced me to, and I was blown away by this citrus fruit. Like I was like, I'll never use key lime again. I don't need that <laughs> product. When you got calamansi, you've got it all. Um, so I got to give a shout out to Timmy Barrel Theory uh, for turning me onto that fruit because it was it really kind of changed our whole flavor profile and some of the citrus tones we go for, and it was really hard to find it. Um, when he introduced me to it, I was like, Hey, where are you getting this? And he's like, I get these little 32 ounce frozen bottles of it. And you know, we dump a bunch of these, I get like 300 of them. But when you're making a hundred barrel <laughs> right, batch right. of beer, you can't bring in three pallets no, of 32 no. ounce bottles and dump them into the tank. It doesn't work that way. Um, so we spent a lot of time trying to source that fruit. And I found a guy with WA imports, um, down in Chicago and he brings in all sorts of really, really awesome fruit. And what they did is they were like, you need this much. I don't know if we can produce that. But I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll buy all this stuff. Just make it happen by these dates. Um, and he sent me up some samples and I was blown away by it. So we, we got kumquat from them last year and this Japanese calamansi line, which is just absolutely killer. Um, so that's kind of like we have contracts if you're mentioning the name of, uh, <laughs> of this importer. Yeah, I've, I've given that name to a couple other friends of mine. Now, whoever listens to this podcast, oh. WA Imports. Yeah, get ready for some big orders. Uh-oh. Um, they do charge a premium for it. You know, yeah, that's the yeah. that's the difference is um, there's a lot of different fruit sources out there that you can get for pretty cheap. But when I taste these samples of fruits, there's ones that are a lot better than others. Um, this year in particular, blackberry is really hard to find good blackberry. Um a couple people, I think I know I've tasted really great blackberry beers out there and they probably got that right away because everything else was outrageously expensive and Yikes. the quality was low. Um, you know, we can thank the uh, heat wave out in the right. Pacific Northwest uh, for the damage to that. Um, and, you know, yeah, you thanks global warming for <laughs> fucking up the barley crop, uh, <laughs> fucking up the you know smoke tainting <laughs> hops, um, killing our fruits. Great, great. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. It, it's a it's a brutal year, honestly, for yeah. brewers to to source the proper ingredients for making things price competitive. Right. But 
that that's another piece of it. It's like we want to search out these unique fruits, but we want to also buy the best fruits we can. And that's why our products are premium price is because we don't want to just put something in there and say, oh, we found blackberry. It doesn't really taste like blackberry. It's super sour. It has none of the characteristics we want, but we're committed to making this brand. We don't we don't do that. We'll pull it off the schedule and wait for another year in the future where maybe that comes around. And we start to see the fruits that we want. So um, we kind of focus on what we can get that's super high quality, That's that tastes great that year. And the big piece of it for Humble Forager and it, it, the same at Forager is using all real fruits. We don't use artificial flavorings in anything to kind of like put an accent on it. We rely solely on the fruit and the flavor of that fruit to produce all those flavors and aromas. And with that, I feel that we're able to act as kind of like a chef layering flavors where if you mess around with artificial stuff and you can and you can nail it, good for you. You're you've worked with a lab to design those flavors to work. I find a lot of artificial flavors in beer and I know what they taste like. I know instantly when that product has it in there. And I find that it can actually create new flavors that were unintended when you blend together those artificial extracts um, and even natural extracts. So for us, it's more like, yeah, we're going to make a pie and we're actually going to use strawberries and use rhubarb in it rather than, you know, tincture in some sort of strawberry on top of rhubarb because the strawberries weren't good when we got them, you know. Um, so that helps us design our flavors. And we're we're really um, passionate about that. And that's just the way we do it. And we will we'll never change that. Do you ever pop in some aromatic uh, extracts in order just to, I mean, that's a common thing, especially with something like a strawberry, which is a subtle fruit, um, trying to boost that aroma on top of that natural strawberry, adding some sort of extract uh, on top of it? Uh, we don't. No. Um, no. And that's- a, Stick to your guns. Yeah, that's that's one of the things. And it's really hard to do it on a 100-barrel system. Yeah. Um, it is a challenge to find those flavors and those blends and then have it executed properly on the actual adjuncting days um, to make sure that what I developed in the kitchen um, where this is the quantities that we're going to use. This is the lot of fruit that we're going to purchase and make sure that everything's consistent down the road. It's still, you know, kind of like up in the air until the actual blend goes together in, in the final product. And it's really hard at Forager, you know, we can climb up there, mix it in. It's super easy to source that much fruit. It's super easy to adjust in house and like make that happen. But we yeah, felt the size of this house behind us is, is what? Yeah, we, we have a 10-barrel mash tun yeah. and seven-barrel boil kettle. Um, oversized mash, we'll talk about that yeah, later. You make some stouts. Um, <laughs> you got to have one of those, right? <laughs> um, but it was one of those things that we wanted to have as like the connecting force between Forager right. and Humble Foragers. Is that what, that's what we do at Forager. And there's a lot of people out there who told me that's a bad idea to, to take it to that level at Humble Forager. It's not going to – it's a different brand. You're selling to different people. There's a There's a number of different reasons that people wanted to – um, tell me that using artificial flavors and and things like that would benefit Humble Forager. And they're right. We would get bigger yields in a lot of ways. Um, you could, like you said, accent flavors to really make something pop a little bit more. But we wanted to stay true to the mission of what Forager's always done and show people that on a macro scale, you still can do that. And it is more challenging. Absolutely. But, you know, 
what in life is, you know, good without a little <laughs> bit of a challenge. Sure, to, sure. So know? let's talk about how you do it. I, I mean, I'm curious. And, and as I'm thinking about this, if you're working with an importer, are they bringing it, are they bringing aseptic puree or are they just bringing in puree that you then need to you know, move through your process? Clearly you've got a lot of tools at your disposal at a contract brewery, like we were talking about to kind of, you know, where you could work with non or, you know, regular puree, not aseptic, which opens up a whole additional line of fruit potential on that. Uh, you know, but thinking about that process, like how do you go about that addition thing in order to make sure that what comes out of the the brewery that you're brewing at meets that goal of what you, what you tasted in your kitchen? Yeah. So basically we are bringing in all sorts of different fruits. It's not all aseptic and yeah. that means it's going to be more expensive. You got to ship it on a reefer truck and then you got to pay for cold storage to keep that frozen at, you know, like zero degrees Fahrenheit yeah. or below. Um, so yeah, you bring that out about a week before and then we get the beer nice and cleaned up like the sour base. Um, so our sour base is built off of, um, I'm not going to give you the exact percentages, but you can probably figure it out. Um, it's, it's barley, wheat, spelt, and some oats in that. Huh. And then yeah. um, at Octopi, they sour it. With oh, I'm a, sure that they love that, you know, you're brewing with oats and spelt at a, you know, large contract brewery. Oh yeah. And, and yeah. they're, and they're like, you know, you're just covering it up with fruit anyways, but it's the recipe that we've used for gummies make us likable for a long time. The base beer is actually great on its own. Like if we ever wanted to do some sort of, thing that wasn't overfruited with it we probably could pull that off down so there you literally well. made a gummy mash for for gummies make us yes likeable. absolutely <laughs> yep super gnarly um <laughs> and it, again it makes it a little more expensive if we just used like you know pilsner malt or whatever we'd probably be getting a pretty similar um result but um it's what we know and it's what we wanted to do with that so that's the base and then we get that nice and cleaned up by just doing some ydos and um kind of crashing it throughout the process once it's soured and fermented uh, we then add all the fruit back. And it's just a it's a normal fast lacto process. With, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Lacto D um, down there in Forager. We actually have a proprietary lacto strain that uh, we use here. That's really, really tropical. It's like kind of smells like a little bit of that tomato soup flavor, but it's also got a lot of pineapple and guava to it that come out, which we really love. Um, we wanted to use that at Octopi, but they kind of have a house strain that like they feel that they do really good with. And sometimes contract brewing you have to defer to the contract brewery and let them kind of sure, go with it sure. um so we were fine with what the base was turning out like down there so we then cold crash it down to 33 degrees and we inject in all these fruits um so if we're making like a let's go with coastal sunset um we're gonna add in something to create the pie crust flavor at that point when it's down to 34 degrees uh 33 degree range we then add in our cinnamon and we have we use ground cinnamon just because it mixes in better yeah. um, than whole stick and um, we, we want that to go faster but yeah fresh ground cinnamon and then we'll add in uh, vanilla bean powder um, our friend uh, Ted Jones out in California if you don't know his name Ted get ready for a bunch more vanilla orders um, <laughs> I'll talk about him later yeah. uh, with forager too um, he has awesome vanilla and so we buy powderized stuff from him that he grinds up and then it just infuses its flavor a lot faster than if yeah. we were trying to, you know, scrape whole beans. And again, like on a hundred barrel batch, there's certain things that you just can't quite do that you normally would. Um, so then we'll recirculate that for a day. It's the vanilla trick. I mean, I've heard yeah. it over again. And, uh, 
you know, I think uh, Brett Coleman Baker at Urban Artifact was one of the first to talk to me about that. He's like, that's our secret. It's mm-hmm. Vanilla. Vanilla is our secret. Oh, yeah. It, it's a, just a wonderful flavor. And if, if we're creating like some sort of dessert pie, um, Crohinta cinnamon and um, vanilla from Africa, I like usually like Uganda mm. um, is a is a great combination to kind of create that pie crust flavor. So. Um, that's a little, little trick from us that if you guys are wanting to make a pie inspired sour beer, like use those two varieties and you're going to get a really, really awesome, but you also have to be careful that Crohinta cinnamon is a lot more intense. So you're going to use it at a rate about like one third to one fourth of what you would if you were going to use like Ceylon. Um, so Ceylon's really great for certain reasons. Absolutely. But, um, if you want that pie crust, use the Crohinta, Mm. um, so yeah, we do that, we recirculate it, inject in the other fruit purees, keep that beer recirculating, and then we basically run it through the uh, flash pasteurizer, get it carved on the way to the bright tank. How long do you recirculate it typically? Um, usually for about 12 hours is plenty, just yeah. to make sure that it's all homogenized sure. um, when we're going to move it through. Um, because it gets centrifuged before that, we try to pull out a lot of the chunks. Our goal is not to make like hyper, hyper thick smoothie sours. It's to make heavily fruited sours. We like to go with the term um, balanced intensity. And yeah. we we want all those flavors to come through, but we don't want it to pour super chunky. And I don't like the beer to settle out a lot where you do have to roll the can. I want it to be a smooth consistency um, when it does get to your can. Um, so so yeah. then I assume you're this the sour base before you start this is generally a little bit higher gravity that you're Absolutely. then diluting down with this fruit to get into this this finished kind of space. Yep. So when we design the recipe based off of the fruit volume that we're going to put in there and the bricks on it, we end up uh, adjusting our base sour recipe between like seven and a half and eight percent that then dilutes down to six with uh, the fruit. And sometimes we'll add a little bit of like a salted water back to it as mm. well. Um, just to kind of like make sure that the flavor is just right in there and the consistency is correct for us. Um, and that's all done, uh, before we put it through the pasteurizer. Um, so then it comes out there and gets packaged up, uh, within a couple days and re- uh, recirculates in the bright tank as well, um, to make sure that nothing else settled there before packaging. And then it goes through a tunnel at the end and, gets put on pallets and, and shipped to your favorite liquor store in your neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of a lot of process there. When you're when you working on some of these, uh, you know, with these some of these different fruits, especially some of those that you've sourced in different ways from different places, um, are there some that you've found are more finicky than others? Some that take a little more uh, care and attention? Absolutely. Anything with high pectin is going to obviously cause you some problems in the centrifuge and in the can of just kind of like floating in suspension. Um, I love the plum from Oregon fruit puree. Mm. It's so delicious. Um, I'm not like a huge plum eater myself, but that they do something with that puree that it, I don't know where they're getting their plums, <laughs> but like right, um, right. those things are awesome, but it is harder to use. Um, it's got a ton of pectin in it and it wants to like really suspend in solution. Uh, doesn't want to settle out super well. So um, we have thought about using pectinase in there to get that to drop out, but um, we actually haven't committed to doing that yet. A lot of other brewers are like, oh, yeah, just throw that in there. It'll work fine. Um, but we we haven't done that yet. Um, but it doesn't mean I avoid the product. It just means that, okay, I'm going to do this. Uh, the other one that's like caused us major problems um, at Octopine, I apologize to their seller team for this, is, um, is coconut cream. Uh, we've added that before because – we would use like flake shredded coconut and recirculate it in a in a vessel off the fermenter and recirculate past the coconut. But again, 100 barrel batches, that's a lot of work. 
Um, so they're constantly pulling out, you know, soaking wet bags, like 400 pounds, multiple times of coconut, um, trying to get that out of the tank. And they're like, you know, this takes us like a week and a half and it's super labor intensive. Can we try something else? So I was like, yeah, let's go with a uh, coconut cream. So we added that to it. And, um, one day it accidentally got put into the tank before going through the centrifuge. And if you put coconut into a centrifuge, it literally makes like coconut cream <laughs> being ejected from, yeah. uh, from the centrifuge. So it actually broke the centrifuge that day. Um, a piece of it, uh, got pressurized so high in there that it actually like shot off like a bullet. And we were very fortunate. No one was hit by that. Um, and it was just pumping out these like long cords of essentially the coconut cream that you'd see floating in the top of one of your cans that you open. Um, the flavor turned out great and we got the foam stability with the pineapple that we were looking for in that particular beverage. And it, it was delicious, um, but it, it caused major problems like in the actual functionality of our process. Um, so we did something really cool down there. Their lab has an emulsifier. So we took that coconut cream and we um, turned it into an emulsion. And then we ran that into the bright tank post uh, centrifuge and post pasteurization. So that's where the tunnel comes into play because sometimes you need to add something past that or else it's going to cause major problems. Um, and even though it was an emulsion form, when the cans came out, it has kind of recoagulated into these small chunks. So if you have Coastal Sunset version 5, it's uh, inspired by a coconut almond crumble cake uh, that my grandma used to make with plum and blueberries. And it's absolutely delicious. But if you're lucky enough, you're going to get some white chunks floating in your beer. And it's not a problem. <laughs> yeah. it's, you're getting real coconut cream that didn't stay in the emulsion form, but actually recoagulated in there, which we haven't found out a way to not have that happen yet. Um, but it was a really cool experiment to try. The flavor impact was great. Um, it just isn't like the most pretty thing to look at in the can because you've got already that high pectin plum in there. Uh, it's kind of like a murkier beverage. Right. Um, but, you know, some some of the desserts that we eat out there in the world don't look that great. They're not all Michelin star presentation desserts. <laughs> Doesn't mean they don't taste delicious. Um, so, you know, our goal is to make the product look beautiful. Also, like presentation of a beer and a glass is is very important to us. Um but, you know, coconut has been a tough one uh, for it's just for like Hetty Topper drink from the can. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't <laughs> always need to see it. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Are there some fruits as, as you're using them that you find um, maybe need a more in order to express or to find themselves, uh, you know, make their presence be a part of a blend? You know, it's good, you know not all fruits are, are, you know, exhibit that similar strength uh, volume to volume. You know, are there are there some of them that you find like, oh, I just got to, you know, got to give them their own boost here by pushing a little more into any kind of blend? Absolutely. Um, so you nailed it earlier. Strawberry is the one for us that's always always kind of like falling in the back. And, you know, strawberries can be so great when you eat them fresh and they also can be terrible. They can taste like water. Yeah. So I think that a lot of puree companies are buying these big, huge strawberries that they can get a lot of mass for. And at the end of the day, they're not those little tiny strawberries, you know, that my grandma was like, just eat the little ones. Those ones are it's the, true. the it's best true. Like, flavor. So much of the fruit industry is built around what's going to look good in a store. And what looks yep. good in a store is not necessarily whatever, what is going to taste good. Absolutely. So strawberries have always been tough for us. Um, our Coastal Sunshine version 14 was uh, strawberry, peach, and mangosteen. 
And mangosteen was one of those fruits that I found when I was fortunate enough to visit Thailand right before the pandemic hit. I was there in December of 2019 and I had seen the fruits in uh, our local Asian food store before, but they were like $10 for one. I was like, I don't know what that is. I'm not spending 10 bucks on it over there. They're like dirt cheap. And we happened to be there like at the peak harvest of it. And I was just blown away by these fruits. So it took me about a year to find um, a good source for it. And we worked with a company out of California, ITI Tropicals, that was able to get us some uh, mangosteen puree concentrate. And I think per pound, it was like $16 or something crazy. Um, so we we got the sample and it tasted really good. And in the kitchen, when I was designing the recipe, it was like, OK, we're putting a lot of strawberry in this and the peach is coming through really nice. So we're going to pull that back a little bit. And we just can't afford to keep this product like in its price point by putting that much mangosteen in it. So we already kind of knew it was hiding in the background of the flavor, but it really was kind of like the glue that tied the, mm. that peach and strawberry together in that batch. And then when we made it, the the strawberry just didn't come through either. So you're, we were kind of left with this weird peachy thing that just had these wafts of strawberry and mangosteen to it. And it wasn't really like the intended flavor that I had come up with when we first made it. Um, and that probably was my fault, you know, is like I should have gone heavier on those products and found a different source for a peach that could have allowed me to put a little bit more in. Um, because, yeah, when you're designing something for for the distribution market, it's very different than putting it in your tap room where it's like, oh, I'm going to put in this super expensive product. I just have to charge more in the tap room to make the margins work there. We're, we're making Coastal Sunshine and that has a specific price target and we can't you know, lose money on that product ideally. Right, so, right. um, what, what the, the goal is agreed to take it at a certain price yep, and you need, ex- to, you need it, to make it to that price. Yep, and we got to sell a hundred barrels of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was, that was kind of like one of the misses for me in yeah. there. And that was, um, you know, it was a bummer because I thought there was a lot of cool potential to use that mangosteen. We found another, another spot for it and another seltzer. Um, But again, it was like sourcing this really cool fruit um, and using it, finding somebody who gave us great product, but it just like didn't work out price wise to put in as much as I probably should have. And, you know, I can talk to people in the future about that and be like, hey, are you open to, you know, charging a little bit more for this? Do you think it would move like if we wanted to do something like that again? But um, yeah, so there's sometimes I would say that, you know, uh, strawberry is the hardest one for me. And then um, that mangosteen was a tricky one too for just a couple different reasons. Since you have a similar kind of strategy between the seltzer side of Humble Forager and the fruited, you know, sour side of, of uh, Humble Forager, how do you differentiate between those two? Or do customers, do you find crossover between them uh, and enjoy both. I mean, in terms of acidity, you know, you even within your seltzers, you're using real fruit that's going to have its own acidity to it. It's still going to present, even if it doesn't taste as acidic as something like a quick sour beer would, you know, but, but there's, I mean, yeah. How do you, how do you find what lane to push each thing into and, and do people cross over for you? Yeah. So the difference between like our coastal series and our humble bumble series is obviously we have a sour base to start with the coastal series and the seltzer doesn't start off that way. So when we're designing the recipe, we're accounting for the acidity and pH of these products that we go in. And we've kind of got a sweet spot number that we aim for, for a balanced blend. 
Um, and then we also know that we're adding honey back. What's that number? Um, that number is some magical number that exists out only in my mind. <laughs> um, hum- some secrets I can't access. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hum- Humble Bumble yeah. is one of those products right now that um, I think is very different than all their seltzers on sure, the market. Sure. And I'm sure people are going to be, you know, making more of it out there. Like you've got Smooge out there just crushing it with flavor profile. Sure. Sure. Like they're doing an incredible thing, but we wanted it to not be quite as thick as their products. Mm-hmm. And then Untitled Arts out there doing the Florida Seltzer, which is like, I think one of the best seltzers you possibly can buy because it fits right in that like calorie range that people are looking for. It has real fruit flavors in it, but it's not quite as thick as our stuff is. Yeah. So you can actually drink like a six pack of that if you're sitting on a pontoon boat. Humble Bumble is, I look at it as more of like, you know, this, this party seltzer that you want to share. Like there's a bunch of people who are like, no, you're wrong. I can drink this four pack. Like, no problem. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, for us, we wanted to do something that was just a little bit more intense than what Untitled Art's doing, but like fit kind of in between that and what Smooge and some of these other like heavy, heavy, over the top smoothie seltzers are. Um, and I think we did a pretty good job of that and sweetening with honey. Um, kind of took us into this realm where there's that hundred calorie range of like basic, you know, super clean yes. seltzers. And then there's the 300 calorie range of a can of smooge and you need to be somewhere in between those things. Yeah. So, um, right now in a pint can, our stuff comes in about 200 calories. So when you're looking at it, it's about 150 it's, calories, yeah, it's not that bad. so it's yeah. not terrible. Um, and there, there is sugar in it, it's you know, it's all fruit, natural you know? sugar, yeah. you know, um, I'm personally on the keto diet at the moment because my son the other night I or in the morning I was making breakfast and he points to me, he's six years old and he goes, Hey dad, if there was a predator animal and it killed you, it would eat this part of your body first. And he pointed right to my love handle. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, you're not wrong. Like, I can't be mad at you. That's one of those things kids say. So I'm not drinking the sugar right now. Um, but at the same time, I think that like we divi- designed that product to kind of almost fit into this realm of like adult soda pops too. I don't drink soda. I never really have. But there are times that I've had one. Um, one that I really, really loved and remembered was Ruby Red Squirt. I thought that that was like unlike other sodas. It wasn't like Mountain Dew over the top sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we designed uh Humble Bumble version six to kind of imitate that flavor profile. Rio red grapefruit juice, a little bit of passion fruit in there, and then pink dragon fruit to pull it really nicely into that um, category of, you know, bright pink. And then we put hibiscus flowers in that and wildflower honey. And it really kind of people are like, yeah, that's really grapefruit for it. And I was like, yep, yeah, that's that's the goal with this one. We want it to be that way. Um, version one was kind of built off of like orangina soda, um, blood orange, tangerine, that kind beautiful calamansi lime and then staghorn sumac and a little bit of um orange blossom honey in that one so the other thing about it is like we, sumac we use flowers in all of our humble bumbles and the flavor impact isn't going to be super huge but there are some other benefits that you can get from you know throwing in different teas um for tannic structure things like that that kind of like build back let's that's okay now we're getting really weird which is the best part of this because i love it when we get really weird i want to let's talk a little bit more about that but but first from the rotatable pickup tube on rogue brewing's pilot brew house to the integrated hot backs on sierra nevada's twin prototyping brew houses ss brewtech is taking technology they invented working with world-renowned industry veterans and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS Brewtech's innovation list, head on over to ssbrewtech.com. 
Metlers.com. Also, are you looking for the tools to make your next improvements in process and quality control? The Metler Toledo Pro 8630i is the ideal sensor for combined color and turbidity measurements and loudering, filtration, and phase shift operations. Robust, compact, and easy to handle, it supports consistency in beer processing. The Intap Portable Oxygen Meter gives you readings wherever you need them. It's flexible in production for verification while purging or for troubleshooting. Whenever you need it, it's your perfect helping hand. Contact Mettler Toledo today to find out more. So teas and flowers. Yes. On top of these intense, uh, you know, fruit flavors. Yeah. And I swear to God, we're going to talk about barrel-aged beers at some point here in the future, but uh, (laughs) I can't get off this topic yet because that's fascinating. Yeah. So um, I was sitting in Prague with Annie and we were trying to conceptualize what we wanted to do for a seltzer. And after enough star That's a curious ramen, place to do it it yeah. really was you know yeah. it was like i need lager to be creative hey. so <laughs> um, typical brewer yeah it was um it, it just kind of like came to me because we use honey so much at forager for all of our mix firm we like bottle condition with different honeys and we use it in a lot of our base stouts at the end of the boil things like that and it was like oh let's let's do this and then i started thinking about it i was like Okay, humble, and then I just like was like humble bumble. Well, bumblebees don't make honey, but you know it work rolls off the tongue. Maybe we could do this, and then what a bee? The bees need flowers to make this. So the whole kind of like concept of the brand was like just developed on a night like sitting on a terrace and in, in Prague, and we came up with all these flavor profiles. And I was like, oh yeah, and then this flower source would like really work well with that. So um, that took a little bit of trial and error and research to figure out which dried flowers and teas we wanted to use. Um, but one that I really love is, um, in our humble bumble version seven, it's a Magdalena river mango from Columbia, which is a really, really awesome product. Um, we love to use that one. We also love the Alfonso mango, um, from India, but, uh, for different reasons. And then we lumped on top of that, some mandarin orange, a little dash of calamansi lime. And then we threw in a whole bunch of chamomile flowers and that just paired so perfectly with the mango. It was like this seamless transition in flavor where we went mango citrus up front, and then it smoothed out to this kind of chamomile honey infused tea vibe at the end. And it just showcased like that these do really add something else to it. Um, and I think that no one else is really doing that. I think like collective uh, arts is doing like a, a line of like um, hard teas and stuff like that, which which are really interesting. And I thought that that was that was neat that they were going that route, too. Um, but nobody's putting tea in seltzer right now that I know of. Um, there could be some other people out there. Um, but yeah, we also wanted to kind of go with that like idea of like foraging. So like staghorn sumac grows all over around here. And if you know what it tastes like, essentially when you steep it in warm water, it gives off this really great lemonade flavor. Mm. So for that particular batch, we've got the sweetness of the tangerine, the bitterness of the blood orange, a little bit of the acidity from the calamansi lime. And then that staghorn sumac kind of floats in the middle of this, like we're going to give it a little bit of lemon zest here too. And then you give it the glue, which is the orange blossom honey, which has this really, really beautiful citrus tone to it already. So these things have a lot of ingredients. It seems like maybe I just threw them all together and hope it tasted good. <laughs> right, right. But but it's really about recipe like development and concentration on like what you need to fill in those gaps with for a well-rounded product that has balanced intensity. And um, that one that one's just been a huge hit for us, and it worked out super well. So. Um, the other one that's really fun that we have right now is version eight 
and it is pineapple with a little bit of morello cherries, which are nice and tart to kind of balance out the sweetness of the pineapple. And then we threw a little bit of calamansi lime in there because it always works great in beers <laughs> and seltzers. Um, and then we threw in honeysuckle flowers, which have this really nice spice tone. So it kind of turned it into almost like a pineapple upside down cake, like holiday spiced cake vibe to it. And um, without that flour in there, we wouldn't have got that. So it was one of those ingredients that's like, okay, yep, this stays true to the brand, but also, you know, goes off in this other direction that um, kind of creates another flavor. So we, we really love using the flour source in there. And it's a little bit tough sometimes to get it passed through TTB approval. Uh, yep. You got to submit some extra extra paperwork there. But, you know, in the end, it works out great. Sure. I can see that in terms of trying to build a, a, you know, a beer or a hard seltzer that has these layers of flavors and these ways to kind of move through it. Um, you know, as you're mentioning it, you especially you're talking about time. Um, you know, and how that sip evolves over time. And I think that's an interesting way to look at this. It's something that we don't always think about as we're designing beers. It's not just what that initial intense flavor is or what that aroma is, but it's also how, you know, as that sip sits in your mouth and after you swallow and how it sits on the palate, you know, what that does. And it sounds to me as if this, you know, especially as you start thinking about tea and herbal kinds of components to it, they tend to have a drying effect which is especially when you're talking about something that's that could be this sweet up front helps make them more and more drinkable helps that person crush can after can of that. Absolutely. And I, I think um, a lot of inspiration for me has come from products. Like I would say like Pliny the elder um, is an awesome hazy double IPA, but what it does for me is like you drink that first sip and it tastes like night. I'm sorry. It's not a hazy double IPA. It's a West coast IPA, sure. um, which is what I really like to drink. And you know, you take that first sip and it kind of hits on all those points. But then as it washes over your palate and dissipates and you exhale and inhale again, you get different waves of characters of flavors. And there's so many West Coast IPAs that are great. They're drinkable. They're they're super nice, but they don't do that thing that changes and evolves on your palate over time. And I think um, Vinny is like a master at that in his recipe designs. He, he gets this thing that hits you up front with this and then it offers you this through your experience and finishes you over here. Um, Corey from Side Project does the same exact thing with his stouts. So why people love them so much, they're not the most intense, they're not the most thick up front, but what they do is over time just evolve and change on your palate and give you this full rounded experience of flavors, textures, aromas, and everything that just kind of keeps on going. And it's a really, really great recipe architect that I think can do that. And that's what we're striving to do with a simple product like seltzer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I love that you can make hard seltzer cool like that. <laughs> that's fun. Well, you just mentioned stouts. And so let's use that as a, uh, a segue to kind of pivot into that. So this is, you know, the stout program at Forager is probably what most of the hipsters know you know you for, um, you know, and you know, you're, uh, this is part of not the humble forager brand, but forager, because these are 750 milliliter bottles that you can sell out there into the world. And so you still produce these at a small scale right here out of the, the forager brew pub. Yes. Um, talk to me about, you know, how you envisioned this program, you know, from the start and how you decided you were going to make barrel aged beers because, you know, it's a small brew pub in Rochester, Minnesota. It wasn't like people are clamoring for, uh, very sweet, uh, heavily adjuncted barrel-aged stouts. I mean, imagine that's not your average brew pub consumer coming in and saying, hey, I, this is what I want. Um, but you guys are you know, beer fanatics also, and I imagine you wanted to try your hand at making these. Talk to me about how you, you started that and, uh, and then how you've 
kind of managed that and continue to grow that uh, as the acclaim for your barrel aged beers has grown. Yeah, for sure. So kind of the history of stout for me was I grew up in Wisconsin. There wasn't a lot. Um, it was Tyranina and Central Waters um, mm-hmm. who did that. And once I moved to Minnesota, um, Founders Breakfast Stout was kind of like the thing that I loved. And we developed a recipe called Sherpa Survival Kit that was kind of based off of that similar concept. Sure, so I had not, some of that last night. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a, a stout that's not popular anymore. It's a dry, big American stout that then has coffee added to it for an extended aging period. So it gets a little bit more roasty. It's not just those bright aromatics of the coffee. A little bit of vanilla and a little bit of cocoa nib in there. So um, when we opened, it was like people were like, whoa, this is amazing. And now when we make Sherpa, like our stout lovers are like, ah, I don't really like this. It's dry. It's like, you know, it's a regular stout. <laughs> right, so right. Um, but we we still make that beer once or twice a year. Um, it is kind of one of our main flagship beers, if you want to call it that here. Um, but that then led us into this realm of like brewing the stouts that we make here. Um, I worked at a restaurant called Nosh Restaurant and Bar, and at that time they were in Lake City. Now they're in Winona, and if you're driving up the Mississippi River, you're absolutely going to want to stop for lunch or dinner at Nosh Restaurant and Bar. They are absolutely fantastic, and their head chef, Greg Jaworski, um, was a big beer trader when I worked there. And so he and a couple of his friends introduced me to a lot of barrel-aged stouts from around the country where I was able to start tasting things that I didn't have access to because I was spending all my money on brewing beer. Um, So I was making these recipes, um, you know, in, in my garage and at his kitchen and all these other places. But I really started to see these other flavors that existed in, in some of these really sought after stouts from around the country that I didn't have access to living in the Midwest. So that inspired me to start brewing those beers um, and working again from kind of like a, a culinary thought process. It was all about, you know, like simmering these stouts, like slowly reducing them down like you would like a demi glass for um, like dosing over something where you're taking something that's essentially pretty thin and you're reducing it down and concentrating the flavors. Some people do it very fast and intensely. Some people do it very slow and methodically. We do both um, because we find that both have a reason in blending. Mm. So um, essentially like there I started sourcing from the really cool little apiary. Um, it was about 45 minutes away from the restaurant. They did barrel aged honey and little five gallon barrels. So it actually worked perfect for me to experiment with our first my first barrel aging. And this was long before Forager was even like a, you know, a thought. So I've been making barrel aged old ales, barrel aged wheat wine, barrel aged stouts in these honey soaked barrels for a long time. And for me, I realized very quickly that when we were like drilling nails and like pulling nails out of these barrels that like they weren't tasting like the beers that we were drinking, but I was pulling those nails like four months and it was like, okay, this isn't ready yet. And then we just let it sit and we let it sit for another season. And all of a sudden you've got a five gallon barrel of old ale that sat there for 18 months and you pull that nail out cause you kind of like put it in the back and it's like, this is amazing, you know, and, and all of a sudden it was like, OK, this is how we're going to do it. So I made those beers just to, you know, give away to my friends at bottle shares sure, essentially sure. And, and do that. And people are like, dude, this is great. So I was trying to open a brewery, finally moved to Rochester. And at that point, the the barrel aged beer was still sitting in barrels. I still actually have one uh, corny keg of our old <laughs> barrel aged wheat wine sitting in the back that I'm just going to let sit there until yeah. my one-year-old turns 21 and be like, how is this? Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it was one of those things where I had already developed my process for that. And then when we got here, it was like, go, 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 go. We're brewing beer for a restaurant. And like, 
I wanted to make barrel aged beer and one of our brewers at the time, Zach Dunbar, who's now with Lua. If you haven't been to Lua, absolutely check them out. They're crushing it. And um, he was like, we got to get this going. And I was like, I know, but we also got to keep our tap lines full. We're a new restaurant. We're super busy. Like this is crazy. Um, so we started to put some beer away into barrels and I wanted to source a lot of those small format barrels, uh, from that apiary. They unfortunately stopped making their barrel aged honey because, um, the guy who owned it, his daughter went away to college. So we're all of a sudden like, okay, we got to find new small format barrels cause we're a restaurant. We can't drive a forklift around in here. So everything needs to be hand stacked. So we're using small format barrels simply because it was like worked for us physically sure, in our sure. space. Um, and we started off with that and then we made a contract with, um, a few distilling down in, uh, Evanston, Illinois. So we would drive down a, uh, tow behind motorcycle trailer and fill the trailer up with basically as many barrels we, we could stuff inside of that thing. And we, we drive them home and we'd usually have like two to three fermenters full of barrel aged, uh, potential beer. And we fill those things up put them in the back and like that's where our program started um we didn't start going to full-size barrels uh, until about two years in everything was small format and yeah we we were pretty limited on what we could blend out of that i think that some of the beers we put together were very good um and we had a couple people locally who did maple syrup in barrels so we were able to source like local maple syrup barrels which gave us other nice threads and a couple of these honey uh producers put their honey in barrels for us so that we could actually then kind of, um, you know, create those flavors that I'd been doing on homebrew level. Uh, we put together some like really fun blends, but as our program has evolved, we also developed a lot of based out recipes. So we don't brew a beer and put a name on it and then put it in a fermenter, put it in a barrel and call it that beer. Um, we've only done that one time and it actually worked out great because it, that barrel aging process actually turned out perfect. Uh, that beer was called Crema, and it was a coconut vanilla stout. But what we normally do is brew a bunch of different base recipes. Some are a little thicker, some are a little thinner. We put some of those thicker ones in smaller format barrels because we found that those age a little bit better in those barrels. And we put some of the beers that finish around, I'd say, like 1056 to like 1065 into large format barrels because we find that that pickup of oak is better in that process. So that's interesting. And I don't want to just keep glossing over that because a lot of the barrels that are around us right now are 15 gallon barrels. And you, as you just said, you're specifically putting a higher gravity base into these smaller 15 gallon barrels because it behaves differently in that small barrel. Absolutely. We, in the Midwest here, we get a lot of like push and pull seasonally um, in our barrels. It gets really, really cold in some of the spaces that we age in in the winter and then really, really hot in the summer. So we focus our small format barrels in those spaces um, so that we can make sure that that really, really viscous liquid is getting pushed and pulled as much as it possibly can through the oak itself. Um, and we just get better pickup that way. Uh, we found that some of our thicker beers that are in large format barrels just don't pick up the barrel character we want as mm. quickly. Um, so we usually aim to put a little bit of our thinner base beers in those. And then at the end of the day, when we decide, Hey, we're going to produce some barrel aged beer, we have things that are turning the corner for us. That's 14 months. We usually 
taste things at around 12 months to like make sure that they're like headed in even the small barrels um even the small barrels wow you can get that many months out of these small barrels we we love it i think the longer we can sit in the small barrels the better you lose a ton of liquid um to evaporation so sometimes you're you're sitting with like a 15 gallon barrel that you only pull nine gallons out of in the end um yeah but like the liquid that's in there is absolutely amazing so the longer we can let it sit the better in my opinion um we also like kind of umami flavors to be blended into the threads of our stouts like it's not the focus of the flavor profile but again it's that thing where it's like we're trying to layer these flavors at the end so back to what i was saying about we don't brew a beer and then call it that beer down the road we brew base beers that are different like colors of art for us or like colors of paint for the, when we want to brew or blend a beer, we have a blank canvas and we go into it. We search through the barrels that are of ripeness for us, which is usually over 14 months and doesn't get much older than 28 months. And for for all those beers, we just taste through them. Um, TJ here is our lead barrel blender, and he basically makes notes on everything like from super positive and he's super harsh on our beers too. Um, he's like the greatest critic of our beers, which is what keeps our program like high end. Um, so he'll make all these notes. We'll look through those and then we'll start to be like, okay, we're going to make a beer that we want to add nuts to. So let's not take our best barrels. Let's take the ones that needed a little bit of help around these edges that weren't fit for a single barrel for a non adjunct blend for a double barrel program. Um, and, and fill in those gaps with different adjuncts that like we want to use for this one. And then we'll be like, okay, let's set aside all the beers that are going to be great for vanilla because Niller's is kind of like our flagship beer. I think it's what like made us nationally known. And that's our, uh, vanilla bean barrel aged double stout that, um, is always aged on five different growing regions of vanilla. So we'll set those aside. And then once we're ready to blend it, pull those out. And what we did this year was my favorite thing with vanilla that we've ever done. Um, Our Niller's release this year has six different variants of vanilla beers. So I think there's a lot of breweries out there that make IPA and they blend different hops in it. And some of their bases are different. Some are pretty similar, but you're going to either get like Nelson, Citra, Rewaka in this one, or you're going to get, you know, Talis, Columbus, and Strata in this one on the same base beer. And people are like, oh, I really like these kind of hops. I don't think vanilla beans get the same credit as how different each different region is and their flavor profiles and the impacts on the aroma and everything like that. So we took a big, huge blend this year and made four of our base nillers out of the same exact base. And then the only thing that was different were the vanilla beans that went into it. So TJ has been scraping caviar for like a month and a half to uh, get enough <laughs> okay, so in you, there. You decided what the blend was going to be that was going to support vanilla period. Some blend of small 15 gallon barrels, you know, some of those nice ones, as well as some of the, the bigger format barrels that was going to build this perfect base for each of these different vanilla expressions, you know, to showcase on. Yes. So what we like to do is take a percentage, usually around, I'd say uh, 60 to 80% of our blends come from large format barrels. Um, They kind of bulk it out, but then our small format barrels give in these amazing threads of flavor that like can't, we can't get that out of the large format barrels. So we're always blending in the small format barrels to like accent different flavors that are either missing or we think would really like shine in one of these blends that we put together 
Um, we, as I said before, we were sourcing from few distillery before. Now we're fortunate enough to work with Rock Filter Distilling. They're out of uh, Spring Grove, Minnesota. They're about 20 minutes away from a stave mill that um, provides staves for all sorts of whiskey companies. It's Minnesota Oak goes into um, their distillery where they grow all of their own heirloom grains for their whiskey. So it's a, basically 100% Minnesota product that we're getting from the oak. Obviously, we use um, a variety of different base malts that aren't grown here in Minnesota, um, but we really, really love these barrels, and um, they, they work so well for our barrel-aged products. So that's kind of like the, the blending goal there is to find large format and small format that go together and create like a, a really great final blend that fits our intended goal in the end. Sure. So then you build this big thing for Nillers this year, all of this base, and you decide to do individual vanilla expressions then um, for what, you know, you know, multiple different bottle releases, all of the same beer? Yeah. So essentially we have like a six pack of vanilla beers coming out um, on April 30th. And it's like super, super exciting to, um, you know, put that together because we're soul searching as like what Forger really, really is. And it, it just kind of came to me that it's like a brewery that loves vanilla. Like we, <laughs> yeah, we got our sure, name for sure. it and we've got Ted Jones on our side to get us these amazing beans from all over the world. And there's some really great IPA producers that like get to blow up awesome hops and use that. And like we produce very, very good hazy IPA. I'm not going to say it's super world class like some other breweries are, but I think that our, our barrel aged stout program is. And we wanted to show people that with the same base, you can have such a drastically different flavor. Because I think most people in vanilla, it's like you probably exposed to Madagascar, maybe Tahitian, um, a couple of those other vanillas. But there's really, really small boutique micro lots from around the world, similar to coffee. Um, that's going to express tons of different flavor. So, for instance, this year we chose our single origin variety from the island of Comoros off um, the east coast of Africa. And it was like that toasted marshmallow that everybody really loves. It was yeah. it was a really, really amazing bean this year. The cure and the harvest was great. Um, so we went with that. But then when you look at what we did for our Africas, which is uh, spelled A-F-R-I-C-A-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z. Um, and I'm just going to throw this out there in the middle of this. Um, we are not in support of Russia at all. Um, <laughs> and what they're doing, uh, we've been using the letter Z for five years plus, and it means vanilla beans. And we love you, Ukraine. Um, so yeah, there's been some people who are like, you know, that you're supporting Russia by putting Z's on your beer. It's like, you don't know our brand then because we've been doing this long before that was a thing. Um, so yeah, I just want to clear the air. On that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the beans grown in Africa that we got this year, we got this amazing bean from Tanzania and it smelled like turned over fresh loam. It was like so mm. earthy and so different than anything. And that thread comes through so predominantly in that base beer. So you'll drink the Comoros and be like, oh, this is a vanilla beer. It tastes like toasted marshmallow. Reminds me of a uh, Hanji, you know, whatever. And it's it's great. But then we wanted to showcase that there's all these other things, just like, you know, East Kent Golding is an amazing hop when used in the right place, featured in this direction. Um, so I, I'm really excited to see people's response to this this year. And if you're up at the Craft Brewers Conference, feel free to come down because we're going to have all six varieties on tap um, <laughs> oh, throughout man. the week, as long as it doesn't cash out super quick. 
um, yeah, you should be able to come down to Forager, check out our tap room. You know, sorry to pump this, but hey, go for it, go for it. I mean, yeah. who doesn't want to drink what six different varieties of uh, barrel aged imperial vanilla stouts all mm-hmm. next to each other? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we also will be releasing some really great new mixed culture saisons as well. Yeah, yeah, and you'll have loggers for the brewers too. And we'll have lager. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so so Nillers in this kind of format, you know, six bottles that all the, the beer geeks will have to try all next to each other because you know that's the way that people generally consume these things um there's sounds like some fantastic parties that are going to happen down here uh, and down the road but let's talk about some of the other barrel aged beers that you make um you know that also explore other flavors because clearly as we've established you love building layered nuanced flavors using all sorts of uh, ingredients that might be out of the box for typical brewers you know let's talk about some of those ways you build other flavors into stouts yeah for sure so we're super fortunate to have a kitchen in house here with like industrial um you know ovens and things like that so a wonderful kitchen the food is fantastic here by the way yeah um and that that allows us to like roast all of our ingredients and toast them fresh in house which i think makes a really big difference Mm. um so for instance like a beer like um like dribbles or pudding dribbles that we make uh, right now, uh, our lead cellarman, Jake, is down in Amish country in Cashton, Wisconsin, with an IBC tote, and he is driving back an uh, IBC tote of maple sap, which is, if you don't know what maple sap is, it's what the base of maple syrup is. It's the water that drains out of the sugar maple tree. And what our Amish friends do down there is they boil that sap down in their really cool old um, Canadian boiler. It's all fire driven and it's a really cool experience to watch them make syrup but what we do is we bring it back and use it as the brewing water in in a lot of beers so during this time when the sap is running every monday we go down and pick up 300 gallons of maple sap and then we brew barrel aged beers with it or pudding dribbles if you've ever had that so that starts off as our base so we've already got this really extra sweet water that goes into it and it has this really cool woody character as well right so I know Sean Lawson does something like that at Lawson's oh, nice. for one of his beers where they brew the with the the base brewing water is, is maple sap. Yeah, it works yeah. out great. And it's a it's a total like forager brand centric thing um, yeah. where we go down there and do this. And we always look forward to it. Every Why not year. make it even harder than? You know, oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> It'd be nice if, you know, we had a little bit bigger system. We could just have a tanker truck bring it up here. But like, <laughs> yeah, Jake gets to do a four hour round trip every Monday for the springtime, which I think he likes. Um, but yeah, after the beer is time to listen to the craft beer brewing podcast. Exactly. (laughs) So once he gets back and we finish like fermenting this beer, we have a recirculation tank that's like, um, outside of the fermenter. When we first started, we would dump all the adjuncts into the tank, uh, cause we didn't have this vessel and we just kind of roll CO2 through it and try to get all the adjuncts in there that, you know, was a good way to do it. But the downfalls of that, um, aren't necessarily flavor impact unless you're over steeping a product. Um, so we'd throw in, you know, for pudding dribbles, an example, coconut, cocoa nibs, vanilla beans, coffee, all these other things at different points in time. But then what, what happens to your staff essentially is when that beer tastes right, you got to move it off those adjuncts like instantaneously at that time. And that's just not really convenient for anybody because that time might happen at 3 a.m. on Sunday night. So, Um, What we start doing instead is we have this recirculation tank and we toast coconut and we let it 
cool down so that it's not super hot when we go in there. We've had problems by putting hot ingredients into the beer as well. Um, so once it's cooled back down to room temperature, we then inject in some of the base beer onto that coconut and recirculate it in the adjunct vessel. We then, after we have a little um, tasting valve off the side of it, so we can taste it throughout that process. And then we inject it back into the base beer that's been off yeast. So we then can taste the final blend of what's going on in there. And it's like, okay, so here's the base beer with one run on coconut. And then we're like, okay, we got enough coconut in the base. Now we're going to go on to nuts. So then we roast the hazelnuts or, um, you know, pecans or whatever nut that we're going to use in that beer fresh in house, grind it up fresh in house, and then throw it in that adjunct tank and recirculate it. And what really helps there is you can manage the amount of time and contact that you're putting on each ingredient. Singular ingredient. Okay. Yes. So then you huh. can start really layering those flavors better. Uh, for instance, like... Now that's a lot more tank time than absolutely. You know, to do that. Uh, yep. Kind of this kind of iterative method, building and building and building. But it, it, it works out for a better product than the end. The, the labor is um, more but it's like more manageable. Yeah. You can get it done during your work shift because at the end of it, it's like, if we're getting close, we'll inject that beer back into the tank and get it off adjuncts overnight because walnuts is a great example. The The skin on walnuts is very tannic. So if you overdo it on that, you're going to get this really tannic structure in the beer. So you got to be careful with that. Same with um, certain types of cocoa nibs. Um, a, a short recirculation is great, but if you go too long, it's going to get really astringent. Um, and then, you know, coffee is kind of the obvious one where if you're throwing coffee into the tank and you only want it to have 14 hours of contact time, like you better have everything else ready to go and a staff member there to transfer that beer off. And hopefully, you know, like nothing gets clogged up or messed up along the way if you're full of adjuncts in your fermenter, um, or you're going to oversteep. So doing a, a like external recirculation is a, is a huge recommendation for mine if you're into high adjunct stuff, because it's going to allow you to for what you want your flavor profile to be hit it kind of right on the nuts. Um, whereas if you're throwing them all in together, you know, it's just going to kind of do its own thing and you might not get the extraction of one thing that you wanted and over extract another. Um, and that's an interesting process too. So you're pulling out into a recirculation, you know, external vessel doing a very kind of high intensity infusion in that vessel and then dosing that high intensity infusion back into the main vessel. Yes. And we, we layer it, individual adjuncts at a time so we like we hit coconut first usually mm. and then um we then go with like why a, coconut a nut, first um because it usually plays like this big base flavor and like we want to layer the things that are like dashes like you know if you're gonna make some sort of like cake you're gonna finish it with cinnamon you're gonna like toss that on the top yeah, yeah. you don't want to start with something like that and then be like oh shoot we missed that because it was overwhelmed by this so we usually go with like the backbone fillers and we feel that like usually in our blends that's that's the coconut the nut um cocoa nibs are kind of like where we start and then if we're gonna add spices and vanilla we finish off with those to kind of accent the flavors on top of it um mm. and coffee is always the last one for us just because uh, it, it can really overwhelm easily. So we want to make sure that that's like done just right too. Um, so if you, if you don't have an external recirculation vessel, um, you can get them for very good prices. There's a number of different companies out there sure. that offer different models of them, but they'll be super beneficial and, and it takes a little while to figure out how to use it properly and what your system needs. But um, that is probably one of the best things if you like doing heavy adjuncted stuff to have. Um, I've got friends at 
other breweries who don't do that. They put it into the bright tank and they jump back and forth. And, sure. and there, there's a lot of different ways to do it. You don't need the piece, but for there's us, recirculating well. through the main tank, through this yes. external dosing vessel, another common method. Sure. Yep. Sure. Yeah. So that there's a lot of ways you can do it. That's just what we've found works best for us. I imagine over time you then build out some parameters that tend to work, you know, more consistently. Um, but then again, you're right. There's you know, year to year variation in some of these ingredients. And so sometimes, you know, still maintaining this kind of process gives you fine tuned control over that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we actually use that. I guess it makes sense too. If you train a new ingredient of some sort, oh, then, yeah. uh, then that's a very uh, cautious way to, to move forward on it. For sure. Like last year we did Chikatanas, which was a, if you're not familiar with what a Chikatana is, it's a giant flying ant um, in this area of Mexico that during the rainy season, they get washed out of their homes and they're flying all over and people catch them with butterfly nets and roast them. And they're a huge part of like mole sauce seasonally down there. It's a delicacy. One of our uh, kitchen staff members, her mother lives down there and sends us uh, Chikatanas every year. So a lot of people think that like we made that as a gimmick beer and what what we did as a mistake last year was not include some of the raw ants in the bottle purchase of that so you could taste <laughs> what it actually tastes sure, like because i don't sure. think anyone has a reference of like right, what right. that ant tastes like but um we actually by the way there is a that. special ingredient story in craft beer and bring magazine along with a recipe from austin so for all of you all who are subscribers you can pop back into the, our archives and check that out and brew it yourself if you want to make a homebrew style batch of that. Absolutely. And you, and you should. It's a super, super cool product. And, um, you know, that's what we like to do here also. And that that kind of shadows into, you know, Humble Forager. We want to we wanted to use ingredients that people aren't using that have great flavor impact. But you nailed it. It was like we need to use this recirculation vessel because we've never brewed with Chikatanas before and we never recirculated on them. So we don't want there to be some weird flavor that comes out of this. We want to authentically get the flavor of those ants into the beer and then we want it to be done so and that's clever too because it's in its own vessel and so if something goes terribly wrong you yep, know you just exactly. don't dose it back in 100 percent. yeah yeah yep so yeah you can we don't lose all that quick. expensive batch of uh you know <laughs> beer or you know get into that problem of well we you know we've got so much money sunk into this that we're gonna need to figure out how to make something even if we're not entirely happy about it yeah and and for us how big is that tank how much beer goes into it for that high intensity infusion uh for us uh we have um 10 hectoliter tanks that usually get filled with like 250 gallons of beer ish and the recirculation vessel is a 60 gallon tank Mm. um so we like to kind of pull out small doses of that to make sure that yeah it works out well we could get something bigger but then we're left with like a lot of headspace and the fermenter and just works good for for our size yeah um and it also we use that tank if we like did a single barrel select or a double barrel select it you can pressurize it um so we actually can just put in a barrel aged stout into that tank fill it pretty much to the brim and then you know package off of that tank as well so we use it for all sorts of different stuff um i think the one we have um is from stout tanks and kettles it was like 1600 bucks so no brainer you sure, know it's sure. a pretty pretty easy vessel it's not like jacketed or insulated or anything but you don't really need that so at least for us we do everything at ambient temperature Mm. so some people like to to do it at cold temperatures and we've found that if we need that just roll it into the cooler and there you go so there there are some things that we've messed around with that we haven't seen results that like prove that we need to have everything cold though sure sure um we've talked about vanilla we've talked about chikatanas are there any other ingredients that uh, you find are really really fun in barrel aged stouts and that uh, you have enjoyed exploring. Yeah. Um, for me, like, I think coffee is one of them. Like yeah. 
coffee is is can be tricky and we get to work with Mastra out of uh, California. They sure. make awesome stuff and we built a really great relationship with them. We use their coffee in our coffee shop here. It's one of the things that we don't do that's like hyper local. Um, obviously, Chicatanas aren't either, but it's a family. It's a family affair with that one. Um, so. Yeah, Mastra Coffee is great. Their roasting process is awesome, and they've been able to source us some really, really cool coffees. Um, we got some Bambito Estate Geisha uh, the past couple of years that we've been using in our stouts, and we're, we're actually going to transition to using that coffee into a mixed firm beer and a lager this year because I think the subtleties of what makes Geisha so great are kind of lost in stout. Mm. Um it, you don't get like a lot of coffee. It's more of a floral tea flavored right. coffee in a lot of ways. So we're gonna we're gonna mess with that and some of our mixed firm stuff and make like a coffee lager with it just to kind of like showcase like how cool this coffee is. That it's not like roasty and earthy and chocolatey really at all. Right. Right. Um, so that's that's always another challenging ingredient. That and cocoa nibs. Um, the biggest one I think for um, you guys out there as far as like using cocoa nibs in a beer. If you have something that like is a little lacking in body, throw cocoa nibs in it. It's it's a bodybuilder, um, mm. and and it like doesn't really back sweeten, but adds these great layers that I think again regionality is the big one. Um, yeah, people are like, oh yeah, get cocoa nibs, and it's like, where are they from? Because they're drastically different. Um, it's kind of like our passion for vanilla beans from different regions. Cocoa nibs from different regions is the same exact kind of thing. Same with coffee. Um, so those are reasons that those ingredients I think are so special to me is that you say coffee and it means one thing to a lot of people, but you know, if you're into it, it's, it's such a diverse product and um, it's really fun to play with those ingredients, especially in our base stouts. So yeah, cocoa nibs, bodybuilder. When it comes to using coffee, how do you go about using it? Are you using whole bean steeping or uh, clearly you're going to research and and do your normal process on that. But, uh, you know, do you grind it? What, what does that uh, look like? And you imagine you're using it ambient temperature, like you said, uh, so coffee, we actually do cold Um, cold. coffee is one that we, yeah, we feel uh, cold is really the only way to go with it. You're going to extract a lot less acidity from it. And we've messed around with a lot of different ways of using coffee over the past six and a half years. And, um, what we found is the best is to blend your coffees. So um, work with your local roaster, whoever mm-hmm. you're buying your coffee from, tell them what your goal is in your beer and be like, I'm going to make this beer. It's going to have these other adjuncts in it. And I want coffee to be like kind of the the glue that binds it. And they will help you put together a roast level and like a in, ingredient source. So they're going to be like, oh, we think our Ecuador coffee is really great. And this Peruvian coffee is going to be really good in these two realms. So for me, Peruvian coffee is like really mapley. It has mm. that nice maple character. So we try to source that. But also having a friend in the coffee roasting industry is super important. Um, so we work with those guys. We're like, hey, this is our recipe plan. Can you help us figure out which coffees are going to do best for this? And then with that, we also say, hey, like, how would you guys make this coffee? Because they're the professionals in, in coffee. So use use people when, when you can. And we do whole bean and ground. So we usually do a blend of it. Um, we found that when you grind it, you're opening up a little bit too much to like potential those kind of green peppery flavors. Sure. Um, because you're exposing it to a lot of oxygen. But without grinding it, you're not quite getting the full effect of the coffee. Like the whole bean recirculation is awesome for aromatics. Um, and you get really, really nice characters from the roast, but you're not bringing in like that intensity of coffee. So again, what's your end goal? 
Um, if you really want intense coffee, like Sherpa Survival Kit, it's all ground. <laughs> if we want something that's just a subtle character of the aromas of coffee to blend in with some nuts, but we don't want that dark roast in there because the base beer already possesses that, then we'd use whole bean. But most of our beers use a blend of it. So we'll recirculate on some whole beans and then we'll finish it off if we need to with a little bit of ground coffee also. Fantastic. That's fascinating. I love it. It's, it's just a contextual approach to coffee where you can do it in multiple different ways. Um, that's you're the first person who ever, ever told me that they do it that way. Yeah. Uh, but we, I, but we it just makes found a lot of sense. time that that worked yeah. best for us. Yeah. And, you know, it was nice. So that's cool. Well, let's zoom out. We're getting on in time here. Um, let's talk about the big picture. You know, you as you all started this business, um, you, you have this focus on local. You have this focus on forage. You have this focus on ingredients in general. Um, you know, even the kitchen is hundred percent scratch kitchen. You know, it's very focused on doing things the right way with, uh, ingredients with integrity and having an integrity in that kind of process. You know, you've tried to approach all of the business like that also. Um, but what's, what's the big picture goal? What do you hope to achieve with Forager and then humble Forager also? Yeah. With Forager, our impact is very localized. Um, so we didn't really talk about our mixed firm program, which is totally fine because nobody cares. They would have turned off the podcast anyways. <laughs> we love making mixed firm beer. We just here. did a whole slew of issues, episodes in Belgium. Oh, and we yeah. talked about all sorts of that. Yep. Stuff. So, yeah. you know, Ab- absolutely. <laughs> um, we have a lot to talk about that. So if you'll ever yeah. have me back on the show, we could for do sure, a little, little sure. segment on that too. But uh, we, for those beers, we don't buy any purees, anything like that. It's all local fruit from real yeah. farmers. So right. Forager's impact is to give back to our local area. We want to use as much local stuff as we can, and we want to give that money back. And we're going to provide an awesome space for people who come to the Mayo Clinic and have you know very, very intense uh, medical procedures going yeah. on with themselves yeah. or their families. A very, very safe, comfortable place to come and kind of get away from that and um, enjoy great localized food from here with inspiration from around the world. But then at the same time, yeah, we just want to kind of give back to uh, southeast Minnesota and the surrounding states um, that we support and they support us. Um, Humble Forager's goal is to give back as well. Um, So with the Humble Bumble line, we really want to be able to give a good percentage of our profits back to rehabbing like a native wildflower and pollinator species habitats with the coastal series we want to donate to rehab and of streams and river um, like decay and embankment problems that are happening Um, and with our ipa line we want to do uh, trail rehab and trail design trail builds uh, things like that so we just want to donate some of our money back to the reasons that we got into this industry in the first places which is loving outdoors loving nature and trying to work symbiotically with that um i feel that there's a there's a lot of problems in the world um that are about humans and i think the one thing that we do share is this this planet we all got to take care of it and we kind of overlook that a lot of times so humble forager's goal is to is to bring light of that and give money back to that with the support of that company and show people that on a big large scale you still can do things with the same focus as you would on a small scale it's why we won't use artificial lab created flavors in those beers why we'll always support the real farmers real people growing these products and we want to give back to that and that's that's our big goal with humble forager and it's a lot more work um, but i think it has a greater impact so um that's always that's always been kind of how we we feel here at forager and we hope that, you know, our customers feel the same. And if you don't, that maybe we can change your mind a little bit to to see the light. Fantastic. And that is a great place to bring this to a close. For nearly 30 years, g d Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. 
Since 1847, Rar Malt has been a benchmark of quality and consistency for brewers. Think outside the puree box with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends. Arrived is craft beer's most trusted point-of-sale system. Put SS Brutex advances to work in your brew house, and the Mettler Toledo Pro 8630i is your perfect helping hand. If you enjoy this podcast each week, we'd love your support. Go to beerandbrew.com, click on the subscribe button, and of course, if you're planning a brewery, head on over to breweryworkshop.com for information on our next workshop in Portland, Oregon this July. Austin, if you want to learn more about Forager or Humble Forager, where do they find both? Uh, yeah, so you're going to go to humbleforagerbrewing.com or foragerbrewing.com, and you basically can follow us on any of our hashtags, Forager Brewery, Humble Forager Brewery. Um, on Instagram, follow us on the little stories there. And we're actually going to be traveling around the country this year for Humble Forager. So we'll hopefully see you guys in your hometowns and we'll share a, a glass of fresh seltzer with you. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Austin. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.